Our gracious God, as we celebrate the season of Advent and we move towards Christmas, I think on the beautiful words of that song we just sang, Come thou long expected Jesus, come Emmanuel, God with us. And that prayer answered so beautifully when Jesus was born. That first Advent necessary because of what we're going to study today in Genesis 3. But in everything, Father, you had a perfect plan, and you still do. Your timing is never off. Your locations, how you're going to accomplish what you want to accomplish will always be perfect. And I'm grateful, Father, that I get to be, we get to be part of your work, part of your plan. And as we study today, God, give us your grace. Help us to hear your voice and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Genesis opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 continue on that idea, right? Uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, some people look at it. Um, there's, even, there's even a theory out there that says between chapter 1 and chapter 2, God destroyed the heaven and the earth and then recreated it. In chapter 2, that is not what the Bible does. That's not what the Bible says. Uh, the reason chapter 2 recounts part of creation is it's a type of Hebrew poetry. Uh, chapter 1 gave us Creation chapter 2 gives us creation with more details and with things we didn't get in chapter 1. It's not a separate creation event. In chapter 2, God has Adam name all the animals. Now, I wonder if what we call them today is what he called them then. I mean, did you ever think about that? Got the bald eagle? Ah, bald eagle, duck. What? Right, and then and then and then you might have like a, a lion and a dog. We call them lions and dogs and ducks and eagles because well, that's what they've always been called, as far as we know. Maybe they had different names. In that process, God said, "Well, there's none comparable to Adam." So I'm going to make him a helper. He takes a rib, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the doctor who invented anesthesia, the idea of putting people to sleep for surgery, got the idea from Genesis chapter 2. He was reading his Bible, like everybody should. He said, God put him to sleep before he cut him open. What a novel idea. And ever since then, surgeries have been much less painful. At least the during part. He names his wife Adam or Eve. <laughs> Good night, folks. He names his wife Eve, for she'll be the mother of all living. 
And in verse 25, it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Of course, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, which is a very interesting statement since there were no mothers and fathers yet, at least not physically speaking. But that is where marriage is established. I mean, so much is established in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Do you know, and this is nothing to do with what we're talking about today, um, but you can establish every major doctrine in the Bible from the first 11 chapters of Genesis? It's pretty incredible, including the doctrine of salvation, which we're going to talk about today. Because it may seem a little off or different to talk about Christmas from the passage in Genesis that describes our fall into sin. Yet here in the midst of the greatest human tragedy is the revelation of the greatest human hope. For it is in this account of sin, judgment, and death that we meet the message of the saving gospel and the person of the Lamb of God for the very first time. So we remember that God made man in his image. He made him perfect and innocent, and he placed him in a perfect environment. Adam had been given dominion over the Lord's entire creation. He had been presented with a perfect companion, a woman called Eve. I have been presented with a similar companion, perfect Every need they had was met. Everything they had to enjoy was unbroken. They had unhindered, unhindered fellowship with God. The only restriction, don't eat this tree. And for an unspecified period of time, things go well in the garden. Until Eve finds herself confronted by a serpent, controlled by Satan. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, the word pleasant there can actually be translated lust, that it was lustful to the eyes, And the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam, and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Verse 12, Yes, Lord, I blew it. And the man said, Well, the woman, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit, fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent! The serpent deceived me. It was his fault. And I, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go all the days of your life. You do realize that that means at some point in time snakes had legs. Pooh! You know, people get all up in arms about the gun control, all that stuff debate. I own a shotgun. I own multiple guns. Um, the reason I bought a shotgun was for snakes. It's overkill, right? No, it's not. You can kill a snake with a shovel, but you have to get close. You can kill a snake with a car. When we used to live down in Branson, we would drive back and forth between Branson and Trinidad to go to the store. If there was a snake on the other side of the road, I would stop, turn around, go back and get him. Only once did I drive off the side of the road to make sure I got a snake. Only once. I have a problem with snakes. I have a big problem with snakes. But at one point in time, they had legs. Now, could you imagine a rattlesnake with legs? That's a bad day, people. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, but thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Interesting phrase there, isn't it? God revealing to us in Scripture that he is an us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which it was taken. He drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Some people think, and again this has nothing to do with our message, but some people think that God throwing Adam and Eve out of the garden was a punishment. It was a punishment. That throwing them out was a punishment. It was not. It was protection. They were now in a fallen state. 
separated from God by their sin. If they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have remained in that state forever. So he threw them out. So they couldn't eat of the tree of life, and they wouldn't have to remain in that state forever while giving them the promise of salvation. We often want to fault God for things that he does or things that he allows, thinking that it's bad or it's wrong or that it's punishment. Or, but that's not how he works. He could have punished them. He could have just killed them. He created two more people, put them in the garden, and said, all right, now you two, don't eat of that tree. Let's see, let's try this again. But instead, even though they had done this, he protected them. Now, a couple quick things, and then we'll dive into the message itself. Adam, at this point, committed the first act of idolatry. He chose his wife over the command of God. And idolatry is simply putting anything else before God. doesn't matter what it is. Right? You don't have to bow down to a little statue in your living room. You don't have to burn incense to a tree in the forest or whatever in order for it to be idolatry. I mean, those, those things are certainly idolatrous as well. But anytime you put anything before God in your heart, in your life, that is idolatry. And at this point, Adam was given a choice. You picture what's going on here. Eve is lied to. Maybe she's feeling like God was depriving her. Maybe she's feeling ambitious and she wants more than a life in the garden. Maybe she's feeling anxious, like, well, I've never had a conversation with a snake before. Maybe I better listen. I don't know. And then picture Adam. Adam knew she was wrong. Adam knew she violated the command of God. And Adam could have left her there. He could have looked at her and said, Babe, I love you, but man, that was dumb, and I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Instead, he looked at his wife, handing him whatever fruit it was, the forbidden mango. And he remembered God's words in his head. The God who he could walk with physically in his presence in the garden. And he looked at his wife and he chose her. Now I have a perfect wife, as I've mentioned. As much as I love you, I will choose God first. And if I ever don't, she tells me. What a horrible spot to be in. Now they are fallen beings, and immediately they are aware that everything had changed. They became ashamed of their nakedness, when at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. They tried to cover their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. I've never worn fig leaf underwear. I imagine it's itchy. In the midst of this tragedy, God comes into the garden to fellowship with them, and he calls out to them because they've hidden themselves. Now God knows what they've done, and he extracts a confession from Adam, and then the blame begins. 
Adam blames Eve and God, while Eve blames the serpent. And God immediately pronounces judgment upon all of them. Casts them out of the garden. And we're introduced to lightsabers for the first time. I can't prove that the flaming swords here are lightsabers. But nobody can prove that they're not. And for those of us who like Star Wars a little too much, no evidence of that, right? Every time I read this, I see angels standing there with lightsabers. I don't know why. I have issues. <coughs> In verse 15, there is a light that shines out of the darkness. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a Latin word for this verse called pro, I'm going to say it wrong, protevangelium, protevangelium. And it means first gospel. Because this is the first time in scripture that the gospel in any form is revealed to us. And we get a glimpse of the Lamb of God who will later give himself on Calvary's cross to redeem a lost and dying world. This is the first stitch in what is known as the scarlet thread of redemption that is weaved throughout scripture. This precious verse gives us the first promise in the word of God regarding the coming lamb, and it will be our focus today. So we can say, as John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scarlet thread through scripture is very interesting to look at. And I'm not going to try to do that at this moment because it would take a while. But in every book of the Bible, you see Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life. These are they which testify of me. The seed of the woman is Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. We're actually going to see him, as you read through the book of Genesis, you see him many more times. In the book of Exodus, he is the voice of the burning bush, which he claims for himself in John 8. In Exodus, he is the rock that follows them through the wilderness, which Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians. In Exodus, he is the lamb that is slain to protect them from the death of the firstborn. And you get to Leviticus. Oh, Jesus can't be in Leviticus. Every single sacrifice points to Jesus Christ. Numbers. Don't you hate it when you had a great idea that jumped out of your head? Anyways, it continues. Throughout all of scripture, you see this thread. You can preach the gospel from any book of the Bible. Because Jesus is in every one. So let's start. You're like, didn't you already start? No, not really. Number one, Jesus had a unique origin and occupation. This lamb is unique in his origin. We are told that the one who is coming will be the seed of the woman. And we know that's strange because if you took sex ed in sixth grade, you know that women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. The seed 
of the woman speaks of a virgin birth. We are told that the woman will produce an offspring without the aid of a man. This is the first kernel of great truth that will be more fully revealed down the road. We talked about it last week in Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Satan did not understand this. Adam and Eve did not understand this. But God indicates that he will send his lamb into the world through a woman without the involvement of a man. We, of course, know this as the birth of Jesus Christ, as Isaiah prophesied it, uh, as Isaiah prophesied it, as the angel Gabriel announced it to Mary and to Joseph in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1 as well. Why is it important? Why was it necessary that Jesus didn't have a human father? The Bible clearly teaches that sin and the sin nature are handed down from the Father. Romans 5.12 tells us that. Every person who has entered this world through the old-fashioned method of a sexual union between a man and a woman has inherited a sin nature and is, in fact, a sinner at birth. People like to ask the question, well, are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Linda got it right. Yes. We sin because we're sinners. We're born that way. And if you ever want proof of that, and there's a couple sitting here who knows this very, very well right now, tell your two-year-old not to do something. We were here decorating a couple weeks ago. And everybody knows how much we love their boys. and We love all the kids that are here um, when they're here. And we love them when they're not here. But I was, I was talking to Courtney about something. And Huxley and Holden were standing by that fire extinguisher over there. And she goes, no, no, don't touch, don't touch. And I think it was Holden was good. He walked away. And she's like, Huxley, don't touch it. And then she turned back to look at me. And I'm still looking. And he does this. I start cracking up because he and then he walked away. And I just start cracking up. He's like, I'll just wait till mom's not looking. This will be just fine. I I thought it was hilarious. Um, she's laughing now. It probably wasn't so funny then. Right? You don't have to teach a child to sin, right? They just they just do. You have to teach them not to. But the fact is we come with that. Right? It's like the factory warranty when you buy a new car. We come with it. We come with a sin nature. The birth of Jesus was very different since he came into the world without a human father and he was born without the taint of sin. He was born pure and sinless, thus he was qualified to die for the sins of humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What makes the birth of Jesus particularly unique is the fact that he was no ordinary baby, but he was and is and ever shall be God. And at his birth, he was God incarnate. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld him as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then the lamb is unique in his occupation, 
We are told that Jesus was coming to bruise the serpent's head while the serpent would bruise Jesus' heel. And I don't know about you, but I've stubbed my toe and I've hit my head. And while neither is pleasant, um, you know, if, if, you, if you hurt your foot, yeah, you're going to be miserable for a few days. If you hurt your head, you might die. This is the point. Jesus was not coming to improve our environment. He was not coming to improve our social standing. He was coming to defeat sin and death and the devil. And it's a big difference. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, and that is the devil. This was his purpose, to save us, free us, redeem us, forgive us, and give us a new and abundant life. And you may ask, well, how does the devil have the power of death? Because we know he can't actually kill us. So what does he do? He uses fear. It was so apparent during the COVID pandemic. My wife and I had this conversation multiple times that one of the things that was so hard for us to see were those who were petrified by fear of a virus. And, and don't get me wrong, you know, I, it was a virus and people died from it and I'm not, I'm not trying to dismiss that in any way. But I wasn't afraid of it and I'm sure many of us weren't because what is there to be afraid of? Paul said it best, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right, to live is great. I like living, right? Thinking about maybe getting fried chicken for lunch. What a great day, right? I'm here with you. We're worshiping the Lord. I'm drinking coffee from a giant slug mug. There's plenty of things to enjoy. And there's plenty to do as we serve him, as we are his ambassadors, as we share the gospel, as we live the life that he's created us to live. To live is Christ. It's great. I love, most of the time, being alive. And I say most of the time because yeah, I don't know about you, but some days you're like, man, I just want to go home. But to die is gain because what we have here is a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming. That's why the Bible says, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We, we can't even imagine it. It's so far beyond the greatest, most amazing things we can think of. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But for those who don't have that, death is fear. Death is unknown. And the devil plays there. And it's unfortunate. Number two, Jesus had a unique purpose. He came as the victor. The word enmity means hatred or enemy. It, of course, brings to mind the natural hatred that humans have for serpents. Am I the only one? Does anybody here like snakes? Do you like snakes, Steve? Oh, I, was just, I wasn't getting a reaction. I had to check. So it goes back to the comment I was making earlier 
right? I think everybody should own a shotgun for snakes. Maybe for uninvited guests, but definitely for snakes. But there's so much more in view here than me hating snakes. I have the same feeling about spiders, too. You know, my wife is allergic to spiders. When she was pregnant with Lydia, she got bit by a yellow sack spider. And I, we, we didn't even count how many times, but it was like 20, 30 times up her leg. Had to go to the hospital, had to be on antibiotics while she was pregnant with Lydia. Boy, that explains a lot, doesn't it? She's not here today. I can tease her. Um, I know my wife is that allergic. I still ask her to kill spiders for me. You send a guy through the door, he could have his own shotgun, he could be wielding a knife, yelling and screaming, me and him, we're going to party. I got no problem with that guy. That does not scare me. You put a little black spider up on the wall, I have an issue. I don't know. I just, I throw things at them. I hit them with big things. If I'm the one that has to kill them, I hate spiders. I'm not allowed to use the shotgun on spiders. I think my landlord would be mad. Saw these holes from. There are a lot of holes, but no spiders. <laughs> the enmity, though, or hatred that referred here, it speaks of the hatred Satan possesses for the Lord and all that he represents. It refers to the hatred that resides in the heart of the devil that caused him to attack Adam and Eve. It's a t- hatred that desires nothing less than to try to overthrow the Lord and his kingdom, which is what we saw. Satan tried to do, or we read about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. This battle raging in Eden had so much more to do with God than it did with mankind. Satan already knew he lost, right? The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Satan, there was never a moment in his pathetic existence when he hasn't known he's going to lose. The moment he rebelled, he knew. So he did the one thing that he knew would hurt God the most. He went after his kids. Oh man, people can say anything they want about me. Oh, you pick on my kids? Right, so you guys, I I haven't told a pickleball story yet today. I never hit anybody with a pickleball on purpose because it's just me and I don't like it. I've hit a person with a pickleball on purpose once because they hit my daughter with a pickleball. I'm not proud of it. I came a little proud of it. I shouldn't be proud of it. Don't mess with my kids. But Satan knew that would hurt the most. So we are told that the one who was coming was coming into this world victorious. He was coming as one who would engage in warfare with a determined enemy. He would take up the fight that Adam had lost. He would come to do battle with an enemy. And of course, Jesus did just that. From the instant this prophecy was given in Genesis 3.15 until the moment Jesus died on the cross and rose again, Satan did everything in his power to stop the seed of the woman from being born. Think about it. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. In Genesis 4, Cain killed Abel. Surely, that murder was inspired or influenced by the devil in an attempt to stop Adam's line from continuing. He sought to corrupt the human bloodline through evil marriages. We call them the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. 
And there's all kinds of arguments about who they were or what they looked like. Some people suggested aliens. Those people are crazy. Um, Sorry, if you think the Nephilim in Genesis 6 were aliens, you have a problem. Uh, Most likely they were demonic beings that impregnated women and created these people that weren't right. Uh, But he tried that. What did he try to do in Exodus chapter 1 and 2? Tried to murder the children. Tried to do it again through Herod when Jesus was born. Tried to destroy the nation by leading them into idolatry. I mean, over and over and over again. He did everything he could. When you get to the book of Revelation, it's described for us that the nation of Israel was about to give birth. And and the dragon sends out a flood to try to consume the child. But God protects her. And that is why Israel exists today. Because God has protected her. But he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he failed. What Satan failed to understand is that when Jesus, the blessed Lamb of God, came into this world, he did so to take away our sin. This was accomplished on the cross, and his victory was displayed at his resurrection. This is where Satan's head was bruised. Yes, Jesus' heel was bruised. Jesus endured something that's excruciatingly painful. And I use that word excruciating on purpose. The word excruciating comes from the Latin word that means crucifixion. That's why I don't use it on anything, right? You ever hurt yourself and go, oh man, I was in excruciating pain. No, you weren't. Sorry, I don't want to be mean, but no, you weren't. Excruciating means crucified. But his victory was, is, and will always be absolute. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the seed of the woman, promised within moments of humanity's fall. Number three, the Father's unique picture. After God pronounced judgment on the guilty parties, he does something remarkable. God himself slays an animal of some sort and uses its skin to make garments for Adam and Eve. And this is a graphic scene of death, which is a wonderful portrait of the coming animal, or the coming lamb, sorry. There are many who believe that the animal killed was, of course, a lamb. We can't prove it because the Bible doesn't tell us that it was a lamb. Um, personally I think it is now this is an image of sacrifice number one imagine the horror that must have filled the hearts of Adam and Eve as they witnessed death for the first time when I was young uh, my, my, the first time I ever lost somebody um, was my grandpa on my dad's side papa and I can't remember I think I was 11 10 or 11 when he passed away um, it was the first time I'd ever seen a dead body it was at his funeral, open casket. Scarred me to this day. 
even though I will officiate funerals, I still have a hard time at open casket funerals. I mean, I've been in the room when people died, sitting there with the families, praying with them. I struggle with it. Now imagine you've never seen it. Imagine you don't even know what death is. Think of it as a foreign concept. Right now, imagine yourself. Death, you've never heard of it. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know what it sounds like. You don't know what it smells like. Right? And you're like, well, hey, we sewed fig leaves together. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but we'll be okay. And God says no. And he takes this, let's assume it was a lamb. And Adam and Eve were saying, what are you doing with, you know, Sally? That's our lamb. Because they were tending the garden. They were tending the animals there and they didn't eat them. So this was a pet. Maybe. I don't know. I'm guessing. But they take, God takes this lamb. What are you doing? You need to be clothed in something better. And they hear the little bleat. As God kills it for them. As God skins it for them. And they see this lifeless animal skinned so that God could cover their sin. At that moment, they saw firsthand how much sin really costs. They understood that the wages of sin is death. And what we see in this verse is a clear portrait of what the coming Lamb would do for us. The sinless, perfect Son of God was born, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death to show us God's love, Romans 5, 8, and offer us the free gift of salvation and forgiveness by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only is it a picture of sacrifice, it is a picture of sufficiency. After Adam and Eve had sinned and became aware of their nakedness, they attempted to cover themselves by making fig leaf boxers. I wanted to try to lighten it for a moment. Their efforts were insufficient. That's why God killed an innocent animal to cover their bodies. God wanted to show them and us that our works can never atone for or cover our sin. It requires the death of the innocent in the place of the guilty. Sin is taken away only through the shedding of innocent blood. Hebrews 9.22 The best we can do is nothing. Encouraged yet? Merry Christmas, everybody. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Depending on which version of the Bible you read, or which translation, that phrase, polluted garment, uh, is really filthy rags. If you want to know what kind of filthy rag, you can ask me later. 
It's not pleasant. That's the best we can offer. Here, God. And it's not enough. The best we can do is nothing. But you want to know why the gospel is such good news? You already know. But it's because Jesus did everything. Philippians 3, 8, and 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The best we can do is nothing. The best he can do is everything. That's good news. We're talking about Christmas. The greatest gift ever was actually a gift exchange. We did a gift exchange on Friday. I am confident that I came away with the best present of that gift exchange. And no one can talk me out of that reality. And I have to thank Pat, because I was pretty happy with my Tupperware until I saw this. Then I was really sad. Isn't he cute? And Pat was kind enough to exchange my Tupperware for Jabba the Mug. But the greatest gift was actually an exchange. I already referred to 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The best we have is our filthy rags. The best we have is nothing and worthless. The best he has is righteousness and eternal life and forgiveness and salvation and redemption. And he looked at our sin the way I looked at Jabba the Mug. I said, I'll take that. It's actually a pretty fair comparison, isn't it? And he said, in an exchange for it, I will give you everything. Everything. Life. Forgiveness. Hope. Purpose. Eternity. Redemption. A relationship with our Father. Everything. Think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We're going to study that when we get back in Luke we might get there by next Christmas at the rate we're going through Luke. He lost everything, didn't he? And the best that he had left him filthy, starving, and alone. He was feeding pigs and was so hungry that he would have eaten what the pigs were eating. Filthy, starving, alone. And when he came to the father, what did the father do? Covered his filth by dressing him in a robe so that his filth was no longer visible but the covering was that's what Jesus does for us yeah we're, we're in our sin we're filthy in Christ we've been cleansed covered in a robe of his righteousness
It's why Christmas is so worth celebrating. As we close, I started pondering what this world would be like if Adam and Eve had not sinned. There would be no death. There would be no sorrow. There would be no separation. There would be no hate. There would be no violence. Think about that. All of our relationships with God and one another would be good and right. Ladies, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, childbirth wouldn't hurt. Work, for any of us, would never feel like toil or labor. And then, because this is how my mind works, we'd all be naked, which in Gunnison might be a little problematic. But of course, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, the flood wouldn't have been necessary and we would still live in the garden. But, unfortunately, this is not the state of the world we're in. However, it is the promise of the world to come. Because Jesus, the seed of the woman, Emmanuel, came into the world and secured our victory. Because of that, we have the promise of eternal life and a perfect world yet to be made by God once he's finished with this one. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is the hope of Christmas. This is the promise first made in Genesis 3. The promise of victory, life, salvation and forgiveness the promise of redemption and our reconciliation to god and whether christmas is your favorite time of the year or a time of trial or emotional turmoil because it is for some christmas is really hard for some people and i understand that we can always look at it as the day that hope was born the day that god entered his creation in order to save it, we can always look to Jesus. Luke 2, 10 through 14. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise from the very beginning that you would send your son for us. I thank you for each person who's listening, who's come to a place of knowing Jesus as Savior. And that we would just rest in his finished work, his victory on the cross. I pray for anybody who might be listening who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. There will never be a better time than right now to make that change. To surrender their lives. And believe that Jesus died and rose for them. I pray, my King, that you would bless this Christmas season. And there's so much fun and there's so much good and there's so much to enjoy. But we can have that every day when we remember why we celebrate Christmas. It was the day that the child was born to become the son that would be given. May you be glorified in us as we go about our week. In Jesus' name.
Amen.